Hi, I'm Lenise Brothers, a registered nutritionist, women's health, hormone, and menstrual cycle coach, and the founder of Eat Love Move, a nutrition and well being practice. This is the Period Story Podcast, where in each episode, I sit down with a guest to talk about their period story. We get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods and so much more. Now, on to today's guest. On today's episode, we have Keisha Thomas. Keisha is a registered nutritional therapist, Pilates teacher, and blogger working to make mental health well-being accessible and inclusive. Keisha covers topics such as eating disorder recovery, body image and diversity issues within the wellness industry, and is currently studying for a master's in sport and exercise nutrition. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lenise. So let's get into the first question I always ask, which is the story of your very first period. Can you share with us what happened? Yeah. Um, so I my I started my periods quite early. I was still in primary school. So I um, think I would have been nine or ten when my period started. Um, and I remember being ready for it, as in I had had the conversation and I knew it was coming. I knew what periods were. I think I've been very fortunate in both of my schools that we've talked about. We talked about um, sexual sexual health, but we talked about you know menstrual uh, cycle and and and, and even um, uh, sex education. So we had all that information quite early on back then in my day. Um, it was done in primary schools. So when my period started, I was expecting it. Um, and I just remember waking up one morning and it had started. <laughs> and I just said to my mum, like, it was kind of like, the time has come. My periods have commenced. Um, <laughs> they really like, big, loud, God-like voice. <laughs> yeah, I really felt like I just came into the world like, mum, I think you find a woman now. Can you pass me the pads? Um, so that's, <laughs> that's pretty much my story. And I think I feel very um I'm very aware that my first period was a pleasurable sort of pleasurable and it's a bit far but it was a a nice story yeah nine or ten so Mm. I've interviewed other people who have said that their period has come um at that age and they've said that they didn't feel ready um so I feel like that's quite different hearing that you had spoken about it at school and so when the time came you were ready Talk about how you learned about it at school. I remember, so this is where it gets a bit hazy because I remember just always been the talk about periods. So we we knew that periods were a thing and that they were coming. The actual education about you're going to have a period and this is what you need to do came from my mum, but it was initiated from my auntie. So I started developing breasts and I think this was like the signs that, okay, you know, Keisha's getting boobs now. Um, clearly, if her periods haven't started, they're on their way soon. And my mum's was quite is quite it was and still is quite a young mum. Hadn't thought about having that conversation with me, and it was her younger sister, my auntie, that said, um, "Have you spoken to Keisha about periods?" And my mum was kind of like, as my mum kind of is now, like, "Oh, I haven't had that conversation. Oh, do I have to do it?" And then I remember her. I remember sit quite vividly sitting on her bed on the foot at the foot of her bed. And her telling me about periods and it and but she was telling me it wasn't news, but I didn't know about the care. So I didn't really know. So but some of the things that she told me weren't quite true. And I think it was kind of old information. So I remember one of the things she told me was that um when you when you're in your period, you can't wear trousers. 
and that you have to wear a skirt. And I, to, to this day, I didn't really understand why she said that because I couldn't understand like why would I not be able to wear trousers and I'm quite a sporty girl uh, I, I was quite a sporty girl and I still am in some in some ways um so I didn't really wear skirts and I didn't like that information I was just like oh god I'll wear a skirt like can I still wear my cycling shorts underneath so anyway we had that conversation but she was talking to me more about the care so like getting a pad, changing your pad regularly and and stuff like that so um yeah that's pretty much how I was brought up to speed <laughs> on what to do and, and what periods were. And when you got your period, were you the first of your friends to get it? And this is interesting because yes, I was, but it wasn't really talked about. I don't remember it being like a, you've got your period, you haven't got your period. It was, yeah, I think I was definitely one of the first of my friends. I remember a few other friends getting their periods in primary school as well. Um, but it wasn't this, it wasn't a thing that we really talked about, um, which, yeah, again, I think is quite interesting. So I know there's a lot of, there can be a lot of stigma around that sort of who started, who had, who hasn't, but it really, what I don't, I don't remember it being a focus at school. Um, but I remember it being like a, like, again, another little announcement that you just say in the playground, like, oh yeah, so my period started, no way. And then that was, <laughs> that was kind of <laughs> as far as it went. Yeah. Did you feel different in any way when to your friends after you got your period? You know, I would say it was more the fact that I developed early that made me feel different. The period wasn't the thing that made me feel different. It was the fact that I had quite large breasts at quite a young age. And that got me a lot of attention from both boys and girls and not always in a positive way. Um, and I think that was the thing that made me feel most different. Um, and, you know, also the fact that I was, I loved running um, and I saw these boobs as a little, it's painful when you, you know, when you, they're just budding, they're just coming through and they're so painful. And I just remember thinking, man, this is, this is, this really sucks. Like I've got to like grow these things. I want to run fast. And it's just like, I run and it hurts now. I don't think we had sports bras those days, or at least I didn't have one. So it was like a whole, yeah, that was, that was more my thing. Like kind of a, why do I have boobs now? Like why, what are these? Why? <laughs> and how long did it take you to come to terms with what was happening with your body? I would say by secondary school, my secondary school was an all girls school. Um, by that time, it, I, I felt really comfortable with everything. You know, um, I was by that point, you know, 11 years old, settled into my menstrual cycle, was regular. Um, weirdly, didn't wear a bra for a long time. I would wear a crop top. This is another conversation that my mum neglected to have. <laughs> well, was, was, didn't, didn't remember to have with me that I wore a crop top for a long time. Um, so that was the only time. And again, I felt quite different. Because I remember it was like PE. We're getting undressed and I have my crop top on and all these girls had their bras and they're like, Hey, sure, why don't you have a bra? And I was like, Why 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 do I need a bra? Bearing in mind I've had boobs for like nearly three years at this point. <laughs> um, but yeah, I felt very, very comfortable having those com- not comfortable, but you know, it, it feels a bit more normal by secondary mm. school. And like I said, there were no boys around. So it makes conversations like that a lot easier. You said it was easier to have those conversations. Did- did that contribute to how comfortable you felt with your period and your body? Yeah, I would say so. I definitely would say so. And I think it just, it just was normalized. I think is yeah. the way I would describe it. It wasn't, um, you know, 
it wasn't so much something that I had to really focus on because it was just so normal. Like, you know, if somebody needed tampons, you'd give them tampons. If somebody didn't have their pad, you'd give them a pad. Um, and it was just very, very normal. Um, you know, we had, I remember there was one girl um, in my school who had, it's like had really, really heavy periods, actually. I remember she had a few sort of accidents at school. And, you know, that that sort of, you know, go, goes, gets around. It was kind of like a gossip, but it was more out of, a, oh my gosh, is she okay? So it was very, you know, it was very sort of, um, yeah, it was very holding in terms of periods. I think I've been, again, really blessed in the schools that I went to um, and the way that we were educated around this stuff. And I think that is, yeah, really, really important. Yeah, it's very different to the experience that some of my other guests have described of feeling shame or feeling different you yeah it's so it's very yeah very very different very very you should be feel very blessed because I I definitely am yeah I um, definitely am I think a lot of the conversations I have now with my clients um you know much younger generation for the most part they didn't have that experience they weren't even really taught you know how to look after their vulvas let alone how to manage their periods so um it kind of I was kind of taken aback when I say we had I mean I remember it was my friend's sister came in and did a talk for us um and this was in secondary school teaching us about like hygiene feminine hygiene and how to you know telling us that you know sometimes or for the most part try and go to bed without wearing any underwear let you <laughs> let your vagina breathe yeah. <laughs> and so that's something that I've always remembered since secondary school yeah. Um, and I, I, I run a nutrition group at the clinic, um, the eating disorder recovery clinic that I work for. And I was, yeah, I just kind of realized like, gosh, how lucky am I that I had these conversations? Because a lot of young girls don't. Yeah. Yeah. They really don't. And there's so much, so much shame around periods. And I'd say that 90% of the guests that have come on have talked, used the word shame or discomfort or, um feeling different when they've talked about how they first learned about their period Mm. how would you describe your relationship with your period now um I would say I have a I wouldn't go as far as say love hate because I wouldn't say I ever hate it I mean I I do definitely have this thing where I have to slow down when my period Mm. is is on its way and when it's around those first two days of menstruation for me I don't like nowadays in particular and for the last I'd say few years I, I I can't I have to really slow down I have to take it easy um the first couple of days are quite heavy the second day is very painful um so this is when despite my plans <laughs> I have to take time out um, and I have to think about I even think about how I schedule my private clinic because I won't overload myself in those weeks. I'm, you know, the work that I do is quite, um, it's quite deep work. You know, I'm talking to mm. people with a lot of trauma around your time of the month. You're actually, you know, you're very sensitive. Um, you're very emotional. So you have to be so cautious and, and, and really think about your own self-care um, in terms of how much you load yourself up. And I, I have to say, this information I wasn't given as a child. <laughs> mm. And this was something that I learned in my in my womanhood um, by myself. So you, you adjust your work to where you are in your menstrual cycle and you slow down right, right before your period and right. um, And during your period, how does that change when you're ovulating? Um, 
I think it's only li- quite literally only those first sort of I would say the week leading up to um and then the first two days is the only time I really need to make adjustments other than that I couldn't I'm, I'm this is the niece I'm terrible I couldn't tell you where I was in my cycle otherwise um I just know when it's coming yeah. <laughs> and I know when it's there and yeah. beyond that I think it's really interesting that this sort of um I, I saw that you made a post recently about sort of um, creativity and, and your cycle and I was like hmm actually that's interesting so that's something I'd, I'd be quite interested to learn more about but yeah I don't terribly I don't pay much attention to the rest it, of my cycle I'm not gonna have that <laughs> yeah something that it's worth worth thinking about is the what ha- the inverse of what you do um, around your period so around ovulation when typically energy rises so I was thinking about when you teach Pilates do you notice a difference then are you able to do longer holds or do more um I don't even know any of the names of the Pilates poses but the one where you're in the V and you're holding it's like um the the teaser yeah yeah that one yeah can you hold that for longer you know those sorts of things so look at the difference between your strength and your energy around ovulation and Mm. then compare that to how you feel around your period i'm i'm really interested to have a look at that i know there's a um i think she's a nutritionist a lady called i think her name is stacy sims and she's doing a lot of work around sort of energy and and period and and uh, and in particular looking at sports performance um when you talked about that particular move the teaser that is one that I avoid at all costs because I'm just generally <laughs> not good at it my legs are very heavy that's my excuse anyway but um that is really interesting and I think um you yeah I think you've inspired me to really have a look at that so it, ha- it has been something that's been on my mind it's like oh yeah I must look into that type thing but actually I'm really curious now um to see how that how that actually works out for me I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your work uh, around eating disorders. So you trained as a nutritionist, but you specialize in eating disorders, which is quite, as you say, quite involved work involving a lot of trauma. Talk a little bit more about why you decided to specialize in this area. Yeah, I would say um, I, so where I qualified as a nutritionist, almost 10 years ago and my early work wasn't eating disorder recovery it was never my intention never it definitely wasn't my intention to go down that route of specialization but I was always very aware despite myself at that point being very much a dieter so when I was doing my nutrition training when I qualified when I was first practicing I was still the person who was stepping on scales, wanting to know my weight, wanting to you know, do gym this many times a week and, and all the rest of it. But I always knew that was never the same advice that I would give my clients sitting in front of me. So when I had a client come to me about weight loss, I would never tackle the weight loss head on. I would do the lifestyle around. And if you come into balance, you know, weight might, weight might change. And if it doesn't, how does it feel that maybe that might be your genetic blueprint and, and, and where your body lies? So it was interesting. I always had this little bit of an um, internal battle between what I was doing with my own body versus the advice I'd give my clients. Um, so then what happened was I started working at the um, Recover Clinic. Um, and this was sort of me trying to find my place in nutritional therapy because there weren't many 
people, particularly not here in the UK, and this is before I even knew what, you know, anti-diet approach was and all this stuff. I couldn't really find anyone that spoke my language. Um, I, you know, I, or who, or who even thought about nutrition in the way that I did. So I did always just feel quite alone. And that's when I saw, as I did my sort of like looking around, see, trying to seek my tribe. Um, I realized that this is, you know, the narrative that we use within eating disorder recovery. So it happened quite nicely. Um, as I was doing that research that I, um, found the recover clinic or they found me, I'm not really sure how that, how that worked out, but I started working there and I, instantly knew and then and you know had a, I still learn and I had to do a lot of learning then um but I instantly knew that this is the work that I'm supposed to do um this yeah. is the work that I want to do and I think it's just there's a whole group of men women and children out there who just need to hear a different narrative so um yeah that's that's kind of how I fell into it let's say <laughs> So talk a little bit more about what you said about anti an anti-diet approach. What does that mean? Yeah, and I think, um, so anti-diet just meaning that it's not focused on weight loss. Hmm. So the focus is weight loss, the focus is health. Um, hmm. And when we say health, we're talking about mental and physical health. And I think that's some, I think the mental health aspect often gets forgotten. Maybe that's a bit too harsh, but at least... Um, sort of sidetracked, let's say, or sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Deprioritized. That's exactly the word I wanted. Um, So anti-health just means we're actually looking at the person as a whole and looking at behaviors around food and beliefs around food and lifestyle factors such as sleep, um, you know, exercise as well, but in a really balanced approach. And that weight loss isn't the isn't the central piece, isn't the central part of that work. Yes, a person may lose weight on that journey. Um, Some people need to gain weight, and that might Mm. be the case on that journey as well. And and that's what anti-diet is. It's just sort of, you know, that that focus away from, from weight loss in and of itself. This idea that weight loss is the most important thing for health, which just, you know, isn't true. Hmm. And then your work with women or people with eating disorders, it's quite specialized and you deal with a lot of trauma. How do you talk a little bit about how you work with your clients to start to separate their food behaviors from without everything else that's going on with their health? Mm. You know, I think the, the, um, the, the thing I love sharing with clients at the beginning is the idea that when we feed ourselves, it's like the ultimate form of self-care and that blows their mind because they're often not aware that food and to feed and nourish oneself is an act of self-care mm. when they've been manipulating that for, for so many years. So once they get that idea that, you know, a lot of their, a lot, all of the eating sort of behaviours are a form of self-harm, and that it's just a massive red herring that is distracting them from a, a much deeper issue. And then, you know, an eating disorder very successfully, and that's its whole, um, I guess, aim is to disconnect a person from their body. So they're so disconnected, they're not aware of the emotions that actually that, that they're holding in their body. So they're not aware that they're anxious. Mm. They're not aware of their depression. You know, to, and then if you think more from the nutritional side, 
they're not aware when they're hungry. They have no mm. connection to their hunger signals. They don't know when they're full. They don't know when they're tired. They're usually always tired, but they haven't even connected to the fact that they're tired. So all of that. So it's about bringing the awareness to what the real issue is. And this is where we have this cliche saying where it's it's not about the food, but it is about the food. And it's the, it's the not about the food pit bit that you have to highlight them to. That is, this isn't about you wanting to be smaller. Um, mm. This isn't about that. This is about a trauma or, um, you know, a, a, an emotional issue that you're trying to escape from, um, that you're trying to distract from that you're not wanting to deal with because it's too painful. And I get that. This is why mm. I work with psychotherapists. Um, and you're, and you're using food and exercise behaviors as a way to, yeah, to sort of um, just skip out on that sort of work of just looking at what's really going on. Mm. Have you seen a rise in eating disorders? Yeah. Yeah. It's going up and it is going up. And I, and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am, quite literally probably one of the worst people to ask about statistics but I looked this one up for this very conversation um, <laughs> and actually what we've seen is that from so 2005-2006 there's been a 34% increase in admissions for eating disorders that's a lot and I was surprised at that number I knew there had been an increase but I didn't expect it to be that number so we're looking at about what seven percent um, each year I think a lot of that is to do with um, more awareness around it as well um but it's 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 huge here in the UK and you know and these are the ones that we know of and and this is eating disorders are so sort of nuanced and we a lot of people get missed um people of color often get missed um Mm. often don't get the diagnosis because it isn't something that's considered um when they present in their in their GP um surgery but yeah Eating disorders like binge eating disorder, which is the second most common form of eating disorder, this is one that people don't often reach out and get help for because they just think they're eating loads because they they think, well, they think that because they're quote unquote dieting, it's actually restriction, but because they're dieting, then they suddenly have this binge eating. They think it's to do with the this sort of play, the restrict binge cycle, um, and they often don't seek help for it. But also because eating disorders bring so much shame that a person mm. doesn't even want to tell somebody about the behaviours um, that they're engaging in, um, which is always a real relief when they come into my uh, clinic. And just I'm just like, do you know what you're telling me? Without sort of um, minimising or um, sort of, you know, trying to take away from their experience, I, I really like them to know that this is not uncommon. Um, you know, the behaviours that you're t- telling about are not uncommon um, with, you know, with eating disorders and what, and what you're, ex- you know, yeah how they present and it's always such a relief when they hear that because they just think they're the only ones um doing these damaging behaviors can you talk a little bit more about the types of eating disorders that you see for people who are hearing what you're saying about eating disorder but think that and think they might have something but aren't sure what it is Mm. So I would say that over, so eating disorders, well, we have all these different ones. You have anorexia, which has different, um, different types as well, subtypes, but then you know, you've got bulimia, um, you've got binge eating disorder, and then you have, and I always have to check because it, it's, it recently changed, but you have other, other specified feeding or eating disorder. So one that doesn't come under any of those categories. Um, and so the, the, the common thing for all of those eating disorders is the restriction every single one of those eating disorders have a restrictive um, nature to them. Um, So that's the first thing. But 
they all are also very preoccupied preoccupied with their weight and wanting to be smaller um and and not really not really understanding why that is and often not being able to see um their bodies for what it is as well so if you think about anorexia in some cases of anorexia you can have anorexia in different body types but if we're talking about anorexia in a smaller body they don't realize how small their bodies are and this is strive to be smaller and smaller and smaller and you know and there are there are always going to be um nuances to nuances to this that you know not everybody is focused on weight actually but for the most part that's what you most commonly see um so this preoccupation with food food is everything yeah. um yeah. it's it's something that they think about constantly but I mean like constantly obsessively because they're hungry for the um restriction um and and um sort of yes yeah, so this preoccupation with food but also a fear of food so not being able to navigate social situations not being able to sit and have dinner with family and friends because they're afraid of what this this meal in front of them is going to do to their bodies um i.e it's going to make them gain weight or it's just going to make um you know their their thoughts around their their body um really really we say loud so really mm. heightened um negative thoughts around body image and and, and self so these are the these are the common things that I would say that people see, and then um, the other part would be in some cases. And it's, I'm always having to say some cases here because I want to make sure that I want to be I want to be clear that not everybody will experience it the same. But these are common um, yeah. symptoms anyway. Um, Over exercising, so really going all out when it comes to the you know exercising. It exercise being something that they it's a non negotiable. It's like I have to do this. I have to do this. This and this and this and this regardless of how I feel which again I'm going to go back to this whole thing where you know this whole you know linking it in with energy and and your period and your cycle which I think is really interesting but you know a person who is is using exercise as a way to distract from difficult emotions will exercise come hell or high water Mm. it's it's obsessive um it's compulsive um yeah and so a lot of their brain space a lot of their time is just taken up by those things changing my body making my body smaller restricting food counting this tracking that weighing myself measuring myself body checking and it just it just keeps going and given the work that you do uh, around eating disorders and people really restricting themselves how do you then um what do you think about this whole rise of anti-diet culture which can be quite strong online where it's you know people saying things like um fiu diet culture Mm. and really taking it not to the other end but going really tearing up all of the templates around how we're supposed to think about our body yeah it you know it's this it's this thing when you when when you see um narrative that is aimed towards diet culture it's aimed at diet culture it's not aimed at people who are on diets um and so I think that's really important to sort of to sort of um to highlight that it's this it's the narrative of the, of the diet culture that tells you that smaller is better mm. and that I think you know you almost and I get it I I try to be a bit more direct but gentle I guess in in I don't tend to swear on social media I don't think I hope not anyway (laughs) but I tend to be more gentle in my in my approach but I'm very direct about the culture that I am um 
yeah, in some ways attacking or at least mm. um, protesting um, against because that culture is actually quite strong and quite inflammatory in itself. Um, mm. And if and for those who are in the diet, those who are in that diet culture, so those of those who subscribe to that diet culture, honestly, some of the messages that you read there, sometimes I think, what is this? You, it gets to the point where you don't even know whether this is an eating disorder or is this is diet now because it's very disordered the behaviors that they're trying to promote and this is you know when you're when you're passionate about eating disorder recovery and you're advocating for a group of for a group of people who are um subscribing to that and it's it's quite literally killing them you do get very very passionate and you do have to be yeah quite strong in your language about around the diet culture but equally they um yeah it's, it's that narrative that thinner is better and that's what we're attacking and this idea it's not just thinner is better it's it's um it's it's that um yeah that that your aesthetics somehow have some hold some kind of value over your worth which it yeah. doesn't our bodies are our bodies our bodies change and so you've got people who live in all different types of bodies we have fat we have thin we have curvy we have muscular however you want to label it we are diverse as humans and then this idea that diet culture where they've got this template body or this is what we're all striving for as though it was um, accessible for everybody as though it were even possible for everyone and you've got people literally spending their whole lives trying to achieve this aesthetic which they may never achieve or if they do they've done it at the risk of their own physical and mental health mm. so it, it can sound quite inflammatory and it can sound quite I don't want to say violent but I can get how people yeah I get why people get annoyed at some of my posts and some of those posts um, because they could take it personally but because they're subscribing to the culture and it's the culture that we're attacking not people who are on diets I've, I've yeah. been there myself I was there for over a decade so yeah. I 100 understand um you know what a person's going through I want to ask you two questions mm-hmm. um first about um what you said about people who are on these diets who are then it's more like disordered eating what do you mean by that? Yeah, so no, I, um, so it wasn't that people who are on diets like disordered eating, but a lot of the behaviours that they will um, advise, and, it's, and this yeah. is particularly, um, I would say, I'm talking about social media here, so I can't right. say what, what dietitians and nutritionists are saying in their office because I'm not there, yeah. but yeah. particularly the things that I've seen, and, and certainly clients who have come to me and been told some interesting thing from their healthcare providers but again you don't know where that person was trained you don't know what that person's qualifications were but anyway things like um this idea that we have to manipulate our hunger Mm. this idea that when you're hungry you need to do all sorts of things other than eat to manage that hunger this is disordered this isn't this isn't normal um if you're hungry that's a signal that you ought to eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you get these ideas of like, go brush your teeth, um, just go to bed earlier, avoid your hunger, hunger is bad. And this, this is disordered. Um, so it's not to say that a person who engages in this has disordered eating. I mean, I could have possibly diagnosed that. Um, but it's to say that these quote unquote techniques that they're trying to um, prescribe um, are, are disordered. They're not mm normal way of eating that doesn't create a healthy relationship with food in your body yeah. um, and that's an extreme one sort of the brush your teeth but uh, when you're feeling hungry but I've seen that out there and I've seen it a lot of times and I've seen it in magazines and you know this is what people pick up on them and remember you know maybe when you're hungry you're not really hungry you're thirsty I mean if you don't know if you're hungry or thirsty then we need to look at why you don't know whether you're hungry or thirsty rather than thinking yeah. about 
manipulating hunger by drinking a glass of water. I do. I have to say, I do see that people not being able to differentiate between physical hunger and thirst, and also people not being able to differentiate between physical hunger and this emotional hunger and eating for emotional reasons. And um, I, I certainly don't specialize in eating disorders, but it does, some of the, these behaviors do come into my work with my clients, especially this idea between of delineating between physical and emotional hunger, because it's the, in this culture, we get, ta- we get taught, oh, you're upset, dive into Ben and Jerry's you're feeling great, oh, have some cake, you know? And so people can't differentiate, differentiate between this, oh, I'm, I'm actually hungry. My body is sending me signs that it's time to eat versus, oh, I feel sad or I feel happy. So I think that's really interesting because we, these, this sort of programming gets taught at a really young age. Yeah, I mean, we are... Even with emotional eating and comfort eating, the way I approach that with my clients and sort of not being able to um, differentiate between emotional hunger and physical hunger is that, you know, emotional eating isn't in and of itself a bad coping mechanism. But if it's your only coping mechanism, then you need to look at some other, you know, fill up your toolbox of self-care because it it can't always be food um, because that's also not helpful. But yeah, so sort of, um, and we do so we've been conditioned, we've seen it on films, we see it in the adverts, like people say, tend to turn to ice cream when they've had a breakup, it's just like, okay, but what about journaling, you know, <laughs> what about call your mom, you know, there's all different ways. But it isn't to say that emotional eating in and of itself is bad. Like I say, it's just when it's the only coping mechanism that a person has. Mm. Um, because, I, yeah, it's all about connecting to body. What is, the, what is the signal that my body is sending me? What is my body asking me for, i.e. rest? Is it water? Is it food? Is it, you know, mm. emotional? You talked about the difference between diets and diet culture. There will always people be people out there who want to lose weight. And what I've seen now in my clinic is that people feel ashamed about talking about wanting wanting to lose weight or feel better in their body and they feel better when they're at a smaller size and if they talk about this on instagram or any social media it's like they get attacked love your body at any size love who you are you shouldn't feel like you have to lose weight but they say well, but I just want to, you know, I want to slim down. I want to feel better in my clothes. What do you say to that? I say I have so many responses that my head just went to so many places. So I'm just going to try and categorize and line them <laughs> up and just decide which one I'm going to go for first. Um, I completely sympathize with somebody who feels like they need to be smaller in order to feel better about their body. Um, I think it is you know, my, my go-to response to that and is, is that it's not about your body being smaller, why you want to feel better about it. It's because of the way you think about your body. You know, our bodies change regardless. Mm. So this idea that if my body's smaller, I feel better, I can tell you now that that is not always going to be the case. A person will get smaller in their body, uh, get to even maybe their quote-unquote goal weight and still have hang-ups about their body because it wasn't the body that was the issue. It was what bodies they they see 
to be good bodies. So who are they looking at? What bodies are they idealizing? And what are they trying to do mimic within their own bodies to try and achieve, uh, like I say, that aesthetic that might not be available to them through their genetic blueprint, through the resources that they have available to them? You know, Mm. have they got time to, to do all those hours in the gym? Have they got the money to buy those foods that people are, you know, advocating and, and, and advertising? Sorry. So there's that. So the idea that, yeah, so smaller doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to feel better about your body. Not saying it doesn't, but not necessarily. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an emotional piece that needs to be looked at there in terms of healing your relationship with your body, whether it's bigger or smaller. Um, so that's, that's um, separate from its size. Um, the other part is I think it isn't helpful when if somebody says that they feel a certain type of way about their body, it's not for anybody else to comment on their post and come with what we call toxic positivity of just love your body. Because if it was that easy, the person would quote unquote, just love their body. That's Mm. dismissive of what that person's experiencing. You know, I appreciate that when, and, and it often comes from people, often not always comes from people who already live in a smaller body. So they have mm. what we call thin privilege. And then for that person with thin privilege to tell somebody in a bigger body, oh, you should just love your body, has no idea what it's like for that person to exist in that body. Mm. Um, so to just say that you should just isn't, it's not that simple um, because of the weight stigma that that person has encountered for, throughout their lives, which in itself brings a lot of shame. So when you talk about that shame that they feel about wanting to lose weight and people's reaction, that shame is, you know, also past shames of people making comments about their weight, perhaps. Mm. Um, and that can come from childhood, that can come from parents, that could come from, you know, even your health professionals. We have a big thing about weight bias that goes on in our um my healthcare system at the moment. So there's that as well. Um, And then, you know, if a person, if that's where a person is in their life and that's all they know, then that's all they know. And it's about, you know, my work is very much about meeting people where they're at. So, you know, 95%, probably even more, I wouldn't mean, maybe go as far as say 100 actually, percent of people who walk into my clinic want to lose weight. So it would be so disrespectful of me to sit there and be like, I know, but you shouldn't want to lose weight. Cause that's, it's not that easy. It's so mm. disrespectful to the whole process and emotional turmoil that they've been going through. So I think we do have this culture of toxic positivity on social media that doesn't help. Um, and yeah, we kind of have to remember there is a person behind that post. Uh, um, yeah. And just be mindful of, you know, what their experience might have been um, existed in the body that they, they have. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think your words really resonate with me I I have been on my own personal journey with with weight loss and weight gain and I you know even the work I do I would never say I'm 100% reconciled with my body um you know I had messages from when I was quite young about oh you know you you people meet you and they say oh you've lost weight or they say oh you've gained weight and for a long time, whenever I saw my mother, the first thing she would say would, and it became a joke. It was, how's your weight? How's your hair? How's your teeth? That Those would be the first things that she would ask me. And that would, that we would, I had to make it into a joke because otherwise I would get really angry. Uh, I remember this one time we were, I went to see her and I had, was going through this big emotional time and I had gained quite a lot of weight. And 
the first thing she said to me was, Denise, what's going on with you? You've gained a lot of weight. And we had this huge fight on the street where I said, why do you always have to ask me about that? You know, can't you see that? Can't you ask me about everything else that I'm going through? So, uh, and then for me, it's been, and I'm getting quite personal here. Um, it's been a real journey ever since. And I know I'm not 100% reconciled with with the weight that I am. And, you know, I would be lying if I said that, you know, I feel I haven't had thoughts about losing weight because I do. Um, so this is where I, some of the things that you're saying on an intellectual level, they make total sense, but emotionally I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, and I, I totally hear you, Lenise. I absolutely hear you. And, you know, this idea that this, I think even the idea of, um, well, first of all, so I should go back to say that's it's really difficult, that experience of somebody not seeing you and only seeing your weight as, a, as though it were some indicator of that as, as to how you were. And we do that a lot in our society. We do praise people when they lose weight, which, which feeds into that narrative of, oh, well, if, when I'm smaller, I'm, that's a good thing. That means when I was bigger, what were people thinking about me? And it kind of confirms those sort of negative beliefs that a person holds about themselves. Um, so that's really difficult. And I can 100% sympathize with you because my mum to this day does the exact same. When she sees me, it's, I think you've lost weight, haven't you? Oh, I think you've put on. At this point, my weight doesn't really fluctuate. So I don't know what she's saying, <laughs> but anyway. So that, I mean, that's neither, that's besides the point anyway, but it is one of the first things that comes out of her mouth. But this is generational. So it's like, mm. we got to think about where they're getting that narrative from. And, you know, it's not just our mums that goes way, it's going to go way back, right? Um, so there's that. But yes, yeah, so, and, I, and I totally hear how, you know, this idea of loving the body, I think it's a really unrealistic thing. Again, this toxic positivity that we see on social media a lot, that you have to love your body, your body and be positive about it. So, do you know what? Some days you don't love your body, myself mm. included. Some days you just don't. And oftentimes that's not because there's an issue with your body. Oftentimes you just have an issue with something mm. else going on and it gets directed at your body. Or just sometimes you're just not happy with, you know, I feel bloated today. Mm. And that's okay. You know, it's, we, it's not about shoulding. There's no shoulds here. It's about thinking about how you want to exist for the rest of your life. You know, do you mm. want to exist for the rest of your life thinking about, oh, if, if only I lost an extra X amount of pounds and that would make everything fine? Likelihood is that won't be the case. You know, there are going to be days, like I say, that you love your body. There are going to be days that you don't. And there are going to be days that you're just indifferent. And I'm mm. very much now doing a lot of work with my clients towards this feeling neutral about mm. their body because our bodies aren't who we are they don't tell they don't tell you anything you know I I have a real issue with focus on body I've had focus on my body literally all my life so I've talked about you know breasts at a very young age got a lot of attention for that I was always very athletic very muscular naturally I get a lot of praise about that or lots of comments about it. I'm just like, like this is just my body it's not a commodity um mm. I don't you know I don't not saying, I mean, give me compliments, like, please, I love it. But it's this idea that it, it somehow is, is something to be praised all the time. And actually, I think to myself, well, sometimes I think, are people seeing that I'm also intelligent? Are they seeing like other parts of my personality or they're just seeing my body? That's difficult. Um, and so, and, it, and that goes on, you know, no matter what your body shape is, it's like, that can't be the thing that people see you as. Mm. Um, and it's about that internal work that you have to do as well to think about, okay, 
I am more than my body. What makes yeah. me me? What are my values? What would I tell my, what would I tell a client sat in front of me? What would I tell my daughter? What would I tell my sister? Mm. You know? Yeah. So thinking about everything that we've talked about on the show today, if you want um, a listener to leave, take one thing away, what would you want that to be? I would say the, the word that always comes into my mind, and I think the word that I'm really drawn to at the moment is just being authentic and thinking about what authentic health means to you, um, as in what's within your genetic capabilities, what's within your resources of time, money, your mental capacity. So just being really authentic with yourself and just being, you know, really self-compassionate in that sense, this idea that, you know, everybody can afford to do the stuff that diet culture and wellness industry, that's, I would even go that far, um, prescribes, um, isn't, isn't available to everybody. It's not even suitable for everybody's palate. <laughs> so just that, you know, that being authentic. Um, and also, you know, as a person who comes from a Caribbean um, heritage, I don't see any Caribbean food in these, in these recommendations. <laughs> so, you know, that whole thing of just like, what, what brings you joy? And, 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 you know, just honor that we are, and this is a little bit deep, but genuinely, you know, we're here for a short amount of time. We're not here forever. So, you know, really thinking about what do you want to spend your good brain power and, and time on this earth doing? And I, I think you find, you know, from a personal point, I already lost 10, 15 years of my life to trying to manipulate my weight, uh, you know, I refused to do that any further from there. I had to do a long healing journey and just a lot of self-compassion and it's ongoing work. It's not overnight. Mm. I still have to do that work. It's never going to end. I still have to, you know, read. I still have to meditate. I have to do self-care and things towards my body. So, you know, look after your mental health and your physical health, your Mm. mental health, you know, shapes your your physical health. (laughs) Yeah. So just remember that. Yeah. There's just great, Nora Ephron quote where she talks about if she could go back she would be wearing a bikini from the age of like 21 to 35 you know so it's like just just wear the bikini wear the swimsuit go on the beach and you know you you don't want to look back thinking oh why did I just lay there in my clothes while everyone else was having fun yeah oh I love that absolutely so where can listeners find out more about you and your work? So I'm more active these days on Instagram at Keisha Thomas. Um, I have my uh, website, KeishaThomas.com. I half laugh there because I'm just like, I'm not blogging well, anyway near as, as much as I should be. But that's where my website is. That's where you'll find um, details about me. And then um, as of next week, my YouTube channel as well so um i'll send you the link Denise, and you can link it up in the show notes as they say yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes we will indeed link it in the show notes um thank you so much for coming on the show today Keisha. it was really interesting and illuminating speaking to you thank you for having me i really enjoyed it Denise. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 
30-minute home on health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.